Welcome to Full Rager, a Florida true crime podcast. I'm Karen Curtis, and this Full Rigger is about one of the best jailhouse lawyers I've ever seen. Except uh, he appears to be a possible serial killer. He had a weakness for Dairy Queen blizzards, which did him in. But he's not going down without a fight. And he's still a major problem for the family of a husband and wife that he killed over a vintage, fully restored, cherry red 1971 Chevrolet Cheyenne truck. Ooh, what is it about men and their cars? As you know, I'm an artist. And at one point in my art career, I did very well with my Passionate Women series. It was of women with really long necks and their eyes were closed like they were breathing in because they were passionate about things like flowers and shoes and jewelry, perfume, hot bubble baths, tea, champagne. One of my best sellers was Screw the Tea, Let's Have Champagne. <laughs> oh. Now, if you're interested in seeing my paintings, you can check me out on Instagram at Karen Curtis Art. Anyway, men are only passionate about a few things. Money, women, sports, and cars. My ex-husband had the body of a 1967 Shelby Mustang. I think it was a 67. Delivered to our apartment complex when I was seven months pregnant. He was planning to restore it. You know, it's like a banker's hobby. And after a while, I realized if there was a fire, he would roll the car out of the garage first and then come and find me. Put it this way, it was a deal breaker. And one newly married Florida couple had a similar situation, but that husband, Richard Van Dusen, in 2003, had enough sense to sell his fully restored, one-of-a-kind 1971 Chevrolet Cheyenne truck after about three years of marriage. You see, he bought it and worked on it after his first divorce in the late 90s. He also took it to weekend car shows. He won lots of trophies, and then he married Carla, and he felt that he didn't need the hobby anymore. Carla was enough. (laughs) Anywho, Carla was a courtroom reporter, and on the weekend, she was a clown entertaining children at hospitals. Anyway, while his idea to sell the truck was a good one, little did Richard know that the person buying the truck had other things in mind. The couple lived in Tierra Verde, which has white sand beaches over on the west coast of Florida. Tierra Verde is in Pinellas County near St. Petersburg and St. Pete Beach, population about 37,021. We'll make that 37,019. Bad joke. Uh, The community located on an island near the entrance of Tampa Bay, and it's connected by bridges of the Pinellas Bayway. (laughs) Bayway. Now, acquaintances said the couple had moved to South Carolina, but occasionally returned to their home in Tierra Verde, about 25 miles south of Tampa. And Carla Van Dusen had worked with the court reporter service in St. Petersburg Court, and Richard Van Dusen was a very successful salesman, obviously. They lived on a freaking island. The Van Dusens were last seen leaving their home in Tierra Verde in separate vehicles at 6 p.m. the day before Thanksgiving, 2003. You had Richard driving his one-of-a-kind cherry red fully restored truck, and then you had Carla behind him driving a Jeep. Carla was so tickled pink that they had sold the truck. She called her mom and said, hey, I'm traveling behind the truck and the buyer. We just need to get some paperwork done. 
Well, the Jeep was eventually found by a store owner who was outside his store, covered in blood and shot up. It had blood and it had all kind of things inside of it. It had a, a purse inside of it and the seatbelt was hanging out and just a lot of things you could tell it wasn't right. The right front windshield was shattered and we found a purse with contents and identification and money and so forth relating to the uh, female passenger. And there was an ex-convict's driver's license found lying on the ground near the scene and a potential murder weapon was found at his house. So case closed? No. So a half mile away, another person found two bodies lying in the middle of a dirt road. Richard was laying face down in the dirt of the driveway and Carla was laying on her side. Both had been shot uh, in the head. And uh, we later learned through an autopsy that Carla had also been stabbed. But that police believed that there had to have been a third party involved in the sale of the truck that the Van Dusens knew. Because he was shot outside the vehicle, according to police, and Carla was shot while seated in the passenger seat of the vehicle. The shot went through the windshield, through her upraised hand, trying to protect herself, and into her head. Then the killer used a knife to cut her seatbelt and apparently cut himself and got blood on the steering wheel. Now, the license that was found belonged to a guy named Henry Sullivan, and he had a lengthy rap sheet. We learned that uh, Mr. Sullivan had a comparatively extensive criminal arrest record from narcotics to uh, crimes against persons, battery and aggravated battery, probation violations. He had a reasonably extensive record. So... With the Florida driver's license, they were able to locate where Henry Sullivan lived, and there they found the vintage red 1971 Chevrolet pickup truck, the one-of-a-kind completely restored Little Honey. It had been completely restored. It was a classic truck. It was a definite eye-catcher, and in fact, what I would describe as a one-of-a-kind pickup truck. Well, it looked like an open-and-shut case there, but this was just the beginning. Henry Sullivan could not explain why his driver's license, his Florida driver's license, was found at the crime scene. In fact, he said, hey, I lost it a few weeks ago before you guys came calling. Forensic investigators did not find any fingerprints on the license or on the seatbelt. After having applied an anhydrin to the seatbelt and allowing it to dry completely, I re-examined that seatbelt for the presence of fingerprints and found none. Now, they found a bullet from a 9mm handgun. And guess what? When they searched Henry Sullivan's house, they found a 9mm handgun. In fact, there were two guns there, one inoperable, and the other was tested and found that the lands and grooves did not match. When you look down the barrel of a firearm, you will see the ridges and valleys. Uh, these ridges and valleys, once a bullet is fired, will be imparted on the bullet. So the bullet will also have these ridges and valleys. So this forensic expert found that the markings on the bullet that was found on the floorboard of the Van Dusen's Jeep did not match the markings on the bullet that was fired from Henry Sullivan's gun. And then the story got even weirder when... We are approached by a white male subject who identifies himself as William DeParvin, who announces himself to us as the owner of the truck and said that he had purchased it the day previous. He tells police that, yeah, I bought the truck from the Van Dusen's and I paid them 6500 bucks for it. Hmm. 
wait a minute, Van Dusen had told a co-worker that he found a buyer for his vintage, classic, cherry red, one-of-a-kind, fully restored Chevrolet Cheyenne pickup truck for thirteen five. That was a problem. What's he doing with a bill of sale for $6,500 when, when Van Dusen's telling a co-worker the day before he's, he's found a buyer for thirteen five? Now, that just tells us there's something not right here. In addition, Henry Sullivan lived in the exact same apartment complex as William DeParvine. Now, DeParvine denied that he was the one in the pickup truck with Van Dusen. DeParvine's story was that the couple dropped the pickup truck off at his apartment. His approach to us was very upfront and forward. He was uh, quite conversational, and uh, uh, he wasn't, uh, didn't appear to be defensive or belligerent or anything of the sort. In fact, DeParvine's story to police was that the couple put an ad for the truck in the newspaper. He answered the ad, went over and purchased the truck, and then that the couple brought the truck to his apartment to drop it off and left at about 5 p.m. Well... That flew in the face of what Carla's mom told police. That Carla called her at about 6, 6.30 and said, The night that they were killed, I got a phone call from Carla, and and she was very excited. She said, yeah, I'm in the car. I'm I'm driving behind uh, Rick and the guy that bought the truck because he knows where to get the paperwork done tonight. It just kind of went through my mind as to what is the hurry, you know, that you have to go out at night to to get this paperwork done. So DeParvine told police that he was not the man in the truck. They did a background check on him, and they found that uh, he was no stranger to being arrested. He had a record. We found that Mr. DeParvine had an extensive felony arrest record and that he had just been released from prison and was on probation. So it could have been DeParvine in the truck, it could have been Henry Sullivan who was still a suspect, or it could have been somebody else. Also, we don't lose sight of the fact that there may be an unknown perpetrator involved in this crime. There may be something else completely unrelated to the sale of the pickup involved. So what's the best way to determine who done it? Usually DNA helps. So when the shooting went down, it was Carla who was shot in the front seat of the car through the windshield. And the killer cut her seatbelt off of her to remove her from the Jeep and then to place her on the dirt road. Now, the killer must have cut himself or herself when cutting the seatbelt because there was a drop of blood found on the steering wheel and it didn't belong to Carla and it didn't belong to Richard. The samples that were tested from the steering wheel were consistent with being human blood. Those samples were tested to develop a DNA profile. Now, what I don't understand is both Sullivan and DeParvine had a rap sheet. They were felons. They had both served time, but they still needed to get their DNA. Their DNA was not in the system. In fact, it wasn't until 2017 in Florida that people that had committed some felonies were swabbed for DNA. But in Florida, as of January 2019, all suspects will be required to provide DNA samples for all felony offenses, including felony DUI. This was not the case back in 2003. Well, Henry Sullivan said, no problem, you can take a blood sample, I'll give you my DNA, and it did not match. Sullivan wasn't involved in the crime, so the mystery was, how did his card get there? So the question there was, how did his Florida driver's license end up at the scene of the crime? 
Well, apparently he had a brother. Old Henry did. And his brother got pulled over by cops on the day of the murders. And he was on probation and he told the cops his name was Henry Sullivan. So they thought, well, maybe his brother's involved. We have another person using Henry Sullivan's name and date of birth. Could he be the killer and the one that's dropped the driver's license at the, at the scene where the vehicle was found? Justin Sullivan had a warrant in existence for his arrest, wholly unrelated to any of the matters pertaining to this case. In an attempt to evade that, he gave his brother's name. Our curiosity was piqued to the point that we thought perhaps Justin Sullivan was using Henry's identification and it, and it could have conceivably been that Justin dropped the ID card at the scene of the crime. Man, everybody's trying to point their finger at Henry Sullivan. He's lucky he's not locked up to this day for this crime. So his brother Justin had an alibi which checked out. And it's not Henry's blood on the steering wheel. So police go to their third suspect, Duparvine, and ask him for a DNA sample. And he says, no. We don't have any probable cause at this point in time in the investigation to indicate that Mr. Duparvine is involved in the murder. Therefore, we don't have enough information to draw a search warrant. Now, remember I told you that Duparvine had served time nine years for a weapons charge? And he became an attorney while behind bars, and a very good one. And he knew enough not to give the DNA sample. And he knew enough what to do to prevent police from getting a DNA sample from him. Mr. Parvine is an intelligent individual. Uh, he's, he's not your average type of criminal. So a team of detectives was assigned to follow him everywhere he went. They hope to get a sample. You need like eight to ten people to follow someone so you're not discovered. And Mr. DeParvine, remember, had a law degree. And so he knew that he was being followed. And he was a construction worker. He lived a very simple life. He had no social life. He led a very monotonous, very bland type of lifestyle. He would get up in the morning. He would go to work. He would come back home and stay inside his little apartment and go to sleep. And he made one mistake, though, during the Christmas shopping season. We were looking for him to either eat something, drink something and discard it, chew gum and discard it, or even spit so that we could swab that up. After weeks and weeks of being followed, he finally stopped at a DQ, a Dairy Queen, and he ordered a blizzard. And as he consumed the blizzard with delight, he was sucking on the spoon, which he then threw away. My partner at the time and I watched him eat the blizzard and felt that the way he was slowly eating the blizzard and taking the spoon and raking it across his teeth, that that spoon would possibly give us some DNA from Mr. DeParvan. And detectives retrieved the cup and the spoon from the trash and got his DNA. The technology has become incredibly sensitive and incredibly powerful, and there is the ability to obtain DNA from the smallest piece of evidence in a very reproducible, very reliable manner. And you got it. The DNA on the spoon matched the DNA in the blood found on the steering wheel of the Van Dusen's Jeep. The DNA profile that was developed from the steering wheel was matched to the DNA profile that was obtained for William DeParvine, his known standard. So with the DNA match, police were able to arrest Mr. DeParvine for first-degree murder, two counts. He was on a work release when he killed Carlin Rick. I had been told that 
federal investigators had deemed him to be a psychopath, a sociopath, and I was told by one of the uh, prosecutors that they did not think this whole crime happened because he wanted that truck. It happened because he was looking for somebody to kill. But he maintained his innocence. He said that the driver's license found at the scene, which belonged to Henry Sullivan, proved that he was the killer, not William DeParvine. However, he admitted that he was with Carla and her husband Richard on the night of the murder. He said they delivered the truck, but he did not have the money. He says that they followed him to get the money, and all three of them got into the Jeep on their way there. Soon, the couple realized that there was no friend and there was no money. And he stopped the vehicle and shot them. He cut his hand as he used the knife to cut Carla out of the Jeep. And before he abandoned the Jeep, he planted Sullivan's driver's license, which he may have stolen because he was his neighbor. I've learned a lot about the way the law works and about the way forensics uh, play into a case where there's no eyewitnesses. But DuParvine had a fool for a lawyer himself, and he took the stand. And that's when everything went downhill. As soon as Mr. DeParvine took the stand, then prosecution uh, turned very aggressive and went after Mr. DeParvine and basically started to pull apart um, all the alibis. The point where I made up my mind that he must be guilty was after I heard his complete testimony and decided that all of the alibis that he was coming up with were just beyond belief. The murder weapon, however, has never been located. William DeParvine was sentenced to death in 2006 for killing Richard and Carla Van Dusen, but the verdict was not unanimous, and the jury in DeParvine's trial was split on the death penalty 8-4. to four. So in reversing the Hearst decision, the Florida Supreme Court opined that a jury only needs to unanimously find that an aggravating factor qualifying the death penalty exists in a case. And in DeParvine's case, the reasoning is that since he was found guilty of multiple murders, that alone is an aggravating factor that has been proven. So at this time, he still sits on death row. But now the jailhouse attorney is being a real pain in the ass to the Van Dusen family. The dispute is over the cherry red, one-of-a-kind, classic, totally rebuilt Chevy Cheyenne truck from 1971. So from his cell, this jailhouse attorney claims the bill of sale proves he owns the truck and he has filed pages of handwritten court pleadings in his case. And Robert Vesely's an attorney for Richard Van Dusen's daughter, says, I will give him credit. He is one of the best jailhouse lawyers I've ever seen. But it may not be enough to get the truck back because Van Dusen's daughter said her cousin helped her sell it soon after DeParvine's conviction. You know, she was too afraid to sell it herself after what happened to her dad. So the truck was stole. I mean, this truck is like Stephen King's Christine. How's Christine coming? Oh, Cherry. The story of a car or truck apparently possessed by malevolent supernatural forces. <laughs> and you know what else? They told us the man who owned that car last died in it. The only malevolent force here is DeParvine, because now Florida authorities say that this guy could be a serial killer. Other agencies are now turning to technology for cold cases, some of which are almost 15 years old, and they're looking at DeParvine. 
Mac McMullen, a public information officer for the neighboring Pinellas County Sheriff's Office, says an unsolved murder investigation remains open no matter how old. And he says DeParvine is now a person of interest in the cold case investigation into the death of a couple in his jurisdiction in 1989. DNA is being resubmitted for analysis. The deaths have similarities, although the bodies of Sally and Richard Gary Smith were found in their Clearwater home. The Van Dusen's bodies, of course, have been left lying on a dirt rural driveway. Mr. Van Dusen was shot. Mrs. Van Dusen was shot and stabbed. Mr. Smith was shot and stabbed, and his wife was strangled. The other three homicides getting closer scrutiny occurred in jurisdictions of the Sarasota Sheriff's Office and the St. Petersburg Police Department and date back also to 1989, the year the Smiths were killed. So, here on Full Rigor, I'll keep you posted about the possibility that this guy killed five more people. In the meantime, DeParvine still is fighting for that little red truck that he thinks is rightfully his from his jail cell on death row. It's the little red truck that led to red rum murder. Kind of like Stephen King's The Shining. Red rum, red rum, red rum, red rum. If he gets the truck, he can drive it all the way down the hallway to the death chamber where they're going to put a needle in his arm. Well, that wraps up this episode of Full Rigor with that Florida. Man, main, main, main. Red. I'd also like to thank Forensic Files for providing some of the sound in this podcast. Thanks for joining me. Until next time.